You're now listening to Pinch Talk, the week in science. Dave Robinson here. We've got a galloping new episode of Bench Talks this week. It's horse racing season in Kentucky right now. Plus, the Olympic-level Land Rover equestrian event was just held at the Kentucky Horse Park. Well, with all of this equine on the mind, I wanted to tell you about a paper that brings some new information about the when and where of horse domestication. Then, Leslie Moise, a lifetime equestrian herself, brings us a story about the neural connections that can form between a horse and the rider. And she has a poem written on this very subject. And you know, politics is often compared to a horse race. So, Rob Weber of the Kentucky Academy of Science is going to provide us with a final report on the Kentucky legislature this year and what was accomplished and not accomplished on topics like charter schools, transgender athletics, medical marijuana, the so-called critical race theory in education, and the question of raises for school teachers. Do you know what finally happened on all these issues? And what about the stars, planets, and meteors that are galloping across the sky right now? Do you know about the lunar eclipse that's coming soon? J. Scott Miller reports on what we can see in the night sky in the month of May. But first, let me tell you about some important new research about horses that was published by a large group of international scientists in the October 20, 2021 issue of the journal Nature. Now, before the publication of this paper, I think the general feeling about horses is that they were domesticated multiple times by people throughout Eurasia, which is like Hungary, Bulgaria, Ukraine, Western Russia, Kazakhstan, and that it happened as far back as 6,000 years ago. This is because there's a lot of evidence that people were drinking the milk from horses. They were eating their meat. Some people were buried with horse bones in the grave with them, and different cultures were making art about horses. But these latest researchers took a more biological approach. They extracted DNA from the remains of 273 different horses that had lived sometime between 200 B.C. all the way back to 50,000 B.C., They sequenced the DNA of these ancient horses and compared that to the published genomes of 10 modern horse varieties. And basically what they concluded was that the modern horse that we know now first actually emerged starting in 2200 BC, only 4200 years ago, not 6000 years ago, and that there is this single genetic profile of modern horses that were probably domesticated in the north Caucasus region called the Pontic Steppe, which is basically north of and kind of between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Basically, we're talking southwestern Russia and southern Ukraine. So our modern breed of horse emerged about 2200 BC and quickly spread emanating outwardly from there, from the Pontic Steppe. And within 700 to 1,000 years, it had spread throughout Western Europe and Central Asia. Now, it's believed that the primary use of the horse during that time was for horseback riding because the use of carts and chariots seemed to show up later. And it might have been that the military superiority that these horses provided allowed for a lot of conquests and thus the further spread of the horse. 
These researchers also wanted to know what genes might have actually been selected for by people during this specific domestication period. They found two genes in particular. One gene appears to be a code for a protein called Gasdurman C. Gasdurman C has been linked to chronic back pain due to hardening of the discs in the vertebra. So perhaps this new horse had a stronger backbone so that it could sustain the weight of a rider. And the other gene that they found is a nuclear transcription factor called zinc finger fog member 1. And this protein regulates the expression of genes that appear to affect mood. If you inactivate this gene in mice, for instance, the animals show more anxiety and less aggressive behavior. So this might be why this new breed of horse was so popular among people 4,000 years ago. The combined early selection of these two genes suggests, quote, shifting use towards horses that were more docile, more resilient to stress, and involved in new locomotor exercise, including endurance running, weight-bearing, and or warfare, unquote. What a good segue to our next story by Leslie Moise about horse-human connections. Take it away, Leslie. Hello, I'm Leslie Moise, and today I want to tell you about the brains of horses and humans. This story is based on two sources. The first, the 2020 book, Horse Brain, Human Brain, by Janet Jones, Ph.D., a neuroscientist who taught at the University of California for 24 years. And secondly, an article in the March 21, 2022 issue of the Washington Post about equine physical and emotional therapy, featuring Kathy Alm, CEO of the Professional Association of Therapeutic Horsemanship International. Riders compete in a number of challenging horse sports, from show jumping, eventing, to horse racing. People who don't ride often think riders just sit there while the horse does all the work. In truth, even a strong man can't force a 1,200-pound horse to do anything. According to Dr. Jones, good riders communicate with their horses and convince the horse to jump a high jump, gallop as fast as possible for more than a mile, or slide to a stop. Horses are prey animals with brains wired for flight and have air-trigger reactions. Humans have predator brains. How do these two animals dovetail into a cooperative team? Riding involves meshing invisible signals through shared body language. According to Dr. Jones, these signals get exchanged through nerves along the horse's and rider's spinal columns. Then the horse's prey brain and the rider's predator brain interpret the signals and build learned responses. Together, over months and years of training, they build a shared nonverbal lexicon. Wild horses may jump ditches while galloping. That is very different from the leaps taken over huge obstacles in the competition. For example, show jumping involves a twisting course of many different kinds of jumps and with a tight time limit. Years of practice lead to a successful round, with horse and rider developing a deep well of shared neural experience. These shared experiences are not limited to the Olympic level. Trail riders build a similar trust with their mounts rooted in years of shared body language. To understand how humans' predatory minds can coordinate with horses' prey minds, 
Dr. Jones explains how these very different minds developed over millennia. Horses have a very subtle ability to sense touch. For example, a horse can feel and react to a fly lighting anywhere on its body, even though horse hide is seven times thicker than human skin. Horses communicate with each other through a complex system of body language. From full hood, first from its dam, then from other horses in the herd, domestic or wild, a horse learns to read the intentions of others and get out of the way of an aggressor. Equine brains are wired for swift learning and are paired with excellent memories. They survive by developing brains focused on the stir of grass and the wind, or is that a hidden lion? In comparison, Dr. Jones explains, humans survive by developing focus, planning, and goals, the tools of the hunter, not the reactivity of the hunted. Incidentally, this sensitivity is why horses excel at helping physically and emotionally challenge people. The Washington Post article discusses how horses' rhythmic movements helps handicap riders develop better balance and body awareness, and how horses' sensitivity helps PTSD sufferers become more in tune with their emotions. Why doesn't the human predator brain send the equine prey brain galloping away? The answer is complex, but as Dr. Jones discusses in her book, people have developed tools for riding. Bridles, bits, saddles, and girths. But riding bareback with only a rope around the horse's neck is regaining popularity. Riding bareback facilitates the horse's ability to feel the rider's body language, shifts in weight, tightens seat muscles more easily. Communication with other animals usually means an attempt to incorporate some form of language, like what has been done teaching American Sign Language with gorillas. Horse-human communication needs no such construct. Through years of practice, the horse learns that certain signals mean to make certain movements. For instance, the rider closes her fingers on the reins and exhales. The horse knows to halt even from a canter. Riding a horse the rider knows well involves a brain-to-brain transfer of images. Dr. Jones writes, quote, The horse has a 340-degree range of vision, unquote. People only have 90 degrees of vision, but mounted, a rider may sense something behind her because her horse sees it. Dr. Jones says, quote, Brain to brain is an intricate neural dance, living temporarily in each other's brains. It's a partnership like no other. Horse brain and human brain communication can have such a high level of intimacy, precisely because their minds are so different from each other, end quote. I wholeheartedly agree with this perspective. The following is a poem I had already written based on my lifetime of experience with horses. It's about my old pony, Peppy. Fearless. On Peppy, I felt confident, courageous. When I caught her in the field, I'd tie her lead rope on either side of her halter, hop on her bareback, and jump the three-foot-six-inch coop with a four-foot-six-inch drop out of the pasture. He galloped to the barn 200 acres away, jumping the hunting panels, jumping the hunting panels in every fence line on the way. One day as I hopped on, an older girl I admired rode into the field on her show jumper. Black like Peppy, licorice twists otherwise looked totally different. Lean, tall, white stockings and a blaze. 
I waved and jumped out of the field as usual and galloped to the stable yard. Twenty minutes later, Lynn rode up. I hate you, she smiled. Why? I got on an hour and a half ago. I warmed up in the arena. I jumped grids in the jump field. I carefully rode around the farm, jumping every hunting panel until I reached Peppy's field. Then I watched you hop on Peppy bareback in a halter and lead rope and jump the coop out of the field like it was nothing. The three-foot-six-inch coop with a four-foot-six-inch drop that I spent an hour and a half preparing to jump, the culmination of my whole ride. You jumped it like it was nothing, bareback, in a halter, with no warm-up, on a pony. The state capitol is fairly quiet these days now that lawmakers have completed the 2022 session of the General Assembly. Looking back on this year's session, it's been proven once again, each session has its own characteristics and twists and turns. Heading into this year's session, it looked like COVID-19 was going to be the subject of numerous pieces of legislation, particularly in the form of bills that would have prohibited schools or employers from requiring face masks or vaccines. To the surprise of some, most of those bills did not advance much. There were COVID bills that became law, legislation to end Kentucky's COVID-19 state of emergency earlier than originally scheduled was approved, as was a bill that says the state will regard a positive COVID antibody test as the equivalent of having been vaccinated. That also became law. But for the most part, some of the bills that were really pushed by anti-vaxxers and the anti-face mask crowd did not end up becoming law before the session came to a close on April the 14th. Lawmakers spent some of the time of the final days of the session overriding vetoes that were cast by Governor Andy Bashir. You've probably already heard about legislation that would allow funding for charter schools to operate in Kentucky. To no one's surprise, this was among the bills the governor vetoed, and to no one's surprise, that veto was overridden by lawmakers. That means funding for traditional public schools could lessen in the years to come as charter schools come to Kentucky and start receiving state funding. Another education bill that was vetoed only to have that veto overridden is legislation that gives school superintendents power to set curriculum rather than site-based councils. This bill also contains provisions that sprang from the public debate over critical race theory. These provisions in state law now say that school instruction on race must be consistent with concepts designated in our law books. One of those concepts says that defining racial disparities solely on the legacy of slavery is destructive to national unity. Although this bill is seen as lawmakers' answer to the public debate over critical race theory, it does not specifically address or mention critical race theory in the way that some other proposed bills did this year. Those other bills, which would have specifically prohibited school instruction on critical social theory, did not become law. The Courier-Journal's Olivia Krauth recently wrote a good story that's worth checking out on this issue. In it, education advocates said they were opposed to the bill that became law, but they did acknowledge this bill which was approved, was definitely an improvement and less harmful than some of the other bills on this issue that did not pass into law. One other veto override I want to mention deals with school athletics legislation. Specifically, the legislation will prohibit students who are transgender girls from playing on girls' teams. 
As a result of this bill, state law will now reflect lawmakers' views that a person's sex is determined solely by what's on an original birth certificate. They left no room for the considerations of the complexities of the issue, the fact that people are increasingly understanding that rather than only having a male-female binary, a person's sex can fall within a spectrum, that some people are intersex, and that there are atypical chromosome patterns. The anti-trans bill, as it's known, is now law, but there is talk of a court challenge. Medical marijuana was once again a big issue of the session. For months, people have been guessing whether or not this would be the year the Senate took up a medical marijuana bill, now that that bill has passed the House twice. The answer turned out to be no. The bill was not given a Senate committee hearing or brought up to a vote. But that may not be the end of the issue this year. Since the session ended, Governor Bashir said he is forming a medical cannabis advisory team. That will go on a listening tour in a state where polls already show majority support for medicinal cannabis. And the governor's legal minds are considering whether they can take executive action on this issue and open the door for medicinal cannabis in Kentucky. Opponents in the legislature say that would be overstepping executive branch authority, but this issue is unfolding, so you can expect to see more on this front in the months to come. Since I mentioned some of the highlights of the state budget the last time I gave a report here, I won't go into all the details of it. But in sum, it provides for public education and post-secondary schools in a way that we have not seen in recent years in our budgets. That's a result of the fact that we have a surplus this year rather than tight finances. So there's money in this budget to bring post-secondary funding above the billion dollar mark each year for the next two years of the budget cycle. There's money for bucks for brains as well as asset preservation and new construction on college campuses. The per pupil funding will go up at public schools. Still, despite this additional money for education, Lawmakers did not pass legislation to give teachers a raise this year. The way that they did provide for raises for state employees throughout the state. Lawmakers have acknowledged that there are shortages of educators in the state, and they dealt with this by passing legislation that would create an expedited program for teacher certification. Education advocates acknowledge that this is a band-aid that might be needed for now, but they don't see it as part of a long-term solution. Still, it raises the question, in a state that wants to attract and retain educators, is having a pay raise for teachers going to be part of this mix? That's an issue we'll continue keeping our eye on. Well, now that the legislative session is over, some of us political observers can't help but already be looking toward the next legislative session that will start in January 2023. Lawmakers will attend meetings throughout this year to study issues and discuss topics that might become part of legislative proposals in 2023. So what can we do in the meantime to help ensure science has a voice at the state capitol? Here's a suggestion. Be proactive. In today's political environment, those who only react to what's happening at the Capitol are often going to find that they're only playing defense. Rather than waiting to see which bills are proposed at the Capitol and then reacting to them, you might be well served to decide in advance what you think the issue should be. Then call and email lawmakers, speak out on social media, call reporters, speak your mind. 
Be a part of creating the agenda for the next legislative session. Take, for example, the issue of climate change. If you care about climate change, but you only spring into action when bills are already moving through the process, there's a good chance you're just going to be trying to mitigate damage and stop bad bills from passing. But maybe it would be different before lawmakers even gavel into the next session if people across the state were asking legislators to answer what do they plan to do about climate change. Could that start the long process of building bridges, educating, spreading understanding that in time would help our state start dealing with the science on this issue? Maybe that's wishful thinking, but it's a beautiful Kentucky spring and this is a season for hope. So enjoy it. Get outside, enjoy the flowers and the red buds and the birds, and I look forward to talking with y'all again soon. Reporting for the Kentucky Academy of Science, this is Rob Weber. Scott here. May brings thoughts of warmer weather, making getting outside much more enjoyable. Evening twilight lingers well beyond dinner time. So with those thoughts in mind, I head out and take a look at what the skies of May have to offer. Early May plays host to a meteor shower known as the Ada Aquariids. It is so named because the point from which the meteors seem to stream is located near that star. Though broad in nature, producing meteors over a period from about April 19th to May 28th, its peak is expected the night of May 5th and early morning hours of May the 6th. And since the radiant point doesn't rise until about 3 in the morning, one is likely to see more in early morning skies compared to the evening before. But what makes the shower more interesting is that the meteors are material from the famous comet, Comet Halley. We pass through the orbit of Comet Halley twice a year, so this is the first of those passages. Sweeping up the material left behind by past visits, one might be treated to more than a few shooting stars, perhaps 10 to 30 an hour, near peak activity. Thicker portions of the stream may even produce a burst of activity, averaging about 50 meteors an hour. As with all meteor showers, dedication and early morning rising may be necessary to see the most. We are more directly pointed into the comet's path a couple of hours before dawn's light fades the stars, as well as the shooting stars. This year the moon will be about 15% full, so light scattered from it should not interfere unless there are high clouds. As Halley won't be back until 2061, we at least can see a reminder of its passing through our part of the solar system. The highlight of May observing happens around the time of full moon. I usually discourage sky watching around those nights before and after full moon because the scattered light will block out many of the stars in the sky, making constellation hunting a bit of a chore. But overnight from May 15th to May 16th, the full moon will be passing through the Earth's shadow, producing a lunar eclipse. Lunar eclipses can be leisurely events, hardly noticeable at first, then a bit more dramatic as total lunar eclipse is reached, then a leisurely slide to hardly noticeable again. And you can watch such an eclipse with just your eyes, with no protection, unlike the more dramatic, though shorter-lasting, solar eclipse. This May, the moon will begin to enter Earth's outer shadow, the penumbra, around 9.32 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on May 15th. Over approximately the next hour, the moon will travel deeper and deeper into the penumbra. At this point, the moon will begin entering the darker part of Earth's shadow, the umbra. One might notice a bite taken out of an otherwise full moon. The total eclipse begins when the moon completely enters the umbra around 11.29 p.m. At that point, the moon should have taken on a deep orange-red hue. The color is due to light from the sun passing the Earth's atmosphere, 
bending into the umbra itself like a prism bends light that passes through it. Reds and oranges appear much more as reds and oranges do at sunset, and for the same reason. So the moon will not go black as it would seem, but be a dull reddish-orange color instead. The moon will slowly cross through the umbra for just under an hour. By about 12.54 a.m. the morning of the 16th, it will begin to journey out of the umbra to begin its passage through the penumbra. A bit more than five hours all told, as I said, leisurely. As darkness comes, the scan of the skies reveals some constellations which are not too difficult to imagine because they match their namesakes. Others may be simple patterns, but perhaps harder to see as that after which they are named. High overhead is a constellation Leo the Lion. Leo can be easy to recognize. Its brightest star, Regulus, is near the top of the sky as darkness comes. North of Regulus, one might notice a curve of stars. Along with Regulus, this might collectively look like a sickle or maybe a backwards question mark. This pattern marks the head and chest of Leo. East of here is a triangle of stars, sort of a right triangle. This would be the hindquarters of the lion. Leo is sometimes depicted laying down in the sky. As such, a star or two west of Regulus could represent his front paws extended in front of Leo, and a few dim ones below the right triangle-shaped hindquarters, his back paws. Off to the southeast of Leo are two bright stars. The more southern of the two is Spica. It is the brightest star in Virgo the Maiden. A bit north of Spica, under less light-polluted skies, one might see a V-shaped group of stars. If you add Spica, it becomes more like a letter Y. This would be the upper torso of Virgo, while the lower torso is a bit south and east of Spica. Virgo may best be found using a star map, perhaps even one of those free apps one can get for one's smartphone. The more northerly bright star in the southeastern sky is Arcturus. It is much higher above the eastern horizon. The constellation that it belongs to is not too hard to see. Tying it to its namesake may be a bit more imaginative. The constellation is Bootes the Herdsman. Bootes is lying on his side in the eastern sky and is shaped much like a four-sided paper kite. Starting with Arcturus and moving to the left, one might notice two stars of about the same brightness, then two more a bit broader, culminating in a single star above and about halfway between those last two. This upper star is his head, the rest form his torso, but a kite is far easier to see. Now that we're facing the northeast, a familiar pattern can be found there, near Bootes, the figure of the Big Dipper. During much of the winter and early spring, the Dipper has been located much closer to the horizon, but now we are in late spring. It is positioned much easier to find. I have pointed out in past broadcasts how the Dipper is useful for finding other constellations, including three I've already mentioned. The handle of the Dipper is curved or arc-shaped. So following that arc, one reaches Arcturus in Bootes, that is, one arcs to Arcturus. Continuing with this arc, one speeds to Spica, the bright star in Virgo. So if there were doubts about finding the right stars earlier on, this would be a double check. The back two stars in the bowl of the Dipper can point to a star as well. Traveling southward along that line, one comes to Regulus, the bright star in Leo the Lion. One might even imagine swinging the dipper down onto the head of Leo by using the handle of the dipper. Again, a good way to check that the correct area and pattern of stars has been found. Finally, the best known alignment of stars within those that make up the bowl of the Big Dipper is the alignment of the front two stars. 
a line from the bottom front star to the top front star and extended roughly five to six times their spacing leads to Polaris, the North Star. Polaris is visible throughout the year, always the same height from one's location, always pointing in the direction north. Two more stars extending back in the general direction of the Big Dipper mark the handle of the Little Dipper, with a small box of stars marking its bowl, highlighted by two brighter stars marking the front of that bowl. Dark skies unhindered by light pollution are needed to find most of these, so the stars of the Little Dipper can be a test of just how light polluted one's skies really are. Of course, I have mentioned in other broadcasts the Big and Little Dippers are really part of Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, respectively, or the Big and Little Bears. As to planets, for the most part they are morning sky objects. Saturn rises after 3 in the morning, while Mars, Jupiter, and Venus follow in that order over the next couple of hours. Mercury makes an evening twilight appearance in the evening skies, but could be missed as it is so close to the horizon during the opening weeks of the month. So for this month, we content ourselves with a meteor shower, a lunar eclipse, and the constellations that are always our companions in the night sky. Thanks, Scott, and Rob, and Leslie, and thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Weekend Science. <laughs>